And welcome. Well, um, it doesn't look like a Q&A format, but actually I've got one question I'm going to answer tonight. I'm going to probably take the entire time answering that one question because it's really a good question. Let's start with a word of prayer, okay? Father God, I just thank you for the time that we have together this evening. And we always, Lord, are just so desirous that your Holy Spirit could uh, just have free access to our hearts and our minds and speak to us your truth and your life. Uh, Lord, we, we love you. We love your word. And we just, just give us grace, Lord, to trust and submit ourselves to it that you might speak powerfully into us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So anyway, last you know, weekend, of course, I talked about uh, budgets, God in budgets, and the idea that every aspect of our life is budgeted, but sometimes the one area that it may reveal itself most clearly in terms of our monies is an area that gets overlooked. Well, here was a question that came in that I thought was so good, I really wanted to focus in on it. And it's one of those really courageous, honest questions I love. It goes like this. It says, the financial sermons have been very frustrating for me. What the heck? <laughs> he goes on, he says, the areas of finances have been a struggle for me since I was a young adult. God tells man he must work, and I understand, and I work to provide for my family. It's my responsibility. We have ties since early in marriage. We attended numerous financial classes, and we budgeted, but we always struggle in the area of finances. Unplanned expenses always go on the credit card. Thinking that is just the result of us not working hard enough, we've taken on extra job or extra work to try to fill the gap to the point where all we do is work and all to no avail. At various points in my journey, I've had to admit that I've been angry with God. Test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. Most of the time, I, it feels like the wrong floodgate because instead of blessings, it's water over my head. That's pretty clever. <laughs> what am I doing wrong? That's a, it's an interesting question because whenever you ask of yourself, what am I doing wrong, you can usually come up with a list all on your own <laughs> that may have nothing to do with God or truth and reality because all of us tend to have a very self-accusing, recriminating finger that we point at ourselves. But there, it, it, and essentially it assumes that Suddenly, if I just flip the right switch or I click the right button, then things would just rectify themselves and be solved. You know, part of the reality of life uh, as we know it is that it's full of hardships, it's full of difficulties, it's full of a lot of disappointments. But I think that, uh, let me kind of approach this, uh, I want to do it in a very, a very gracious way because... Um, I don't think that any of us who are honest with ourselves wouldn't admit that there are times where we have felt extremely disappointed in the way our life has unfolded. And it's, it's the dynamic where we look at things that are happening and we say, well, if I had just done this differently or if I had just done that differently, then I could have had a totally different result. And the assumption is that you're majorly in control of your life. I think about Joseph in Egypt. How many times in those years between 17 and 30, where he goes from being a slave to being a prisoner to eventually being lifted to the highest places in the nation, I wonder in those, those 13 years where he was really uh, experiencing what we would call the process of steady, regular, downward mobility, that he wondered, because we're, we're not part of that conversation. We just kind of assumed that he was walking in faith and claiming victory every day. When in fact, I have to believe that there must have been some real dark seasons in his life, times in which it just felt like God had forgotten and God had forsaken him. And so when we step back and try to take the bigger picture of these kind of things, and we say to ourselves, I'm doing everything I know to do, and it's still not turning out well, or at least in a way that makes sense, uh, you, you have to be careful not to automatically assume that you've done something wrong. If you've done something wrong, let me tell you, and you ask God, did I do something wrong? He's so faithful to speak that into your life if you're willing to hear it. But on the other hand, we don't know what God's doing. But I think that there are things that we can look at, and I, and I, and I don't want to be insensitive because 
in the final analysis, without sitting down with this person one-on-one and taking some time to go through their whole situation and become appraised of it, it's easy to give a flip, quick answer that isn't accurate at all and doesn't apply at all. It's easy to sit up here and say, well, will you do this, you do that, you do this, you do that. And then a person says, I've tried all of that, it doesn't work. And that feels like kind of a cruelty at some point because you say, I don't feel like people are even taking the time to listen to what I'm struggling with. Sometimes after we've sat with somebody and we've heard their whole story and they've gone through the the whole explanation of what's happened, we have to be honest and say, you know what? I don't know why. I don't know why. And that's where faith becomes most severely tested. One thing I've learned from experience is severely tested faith always proves to be a positive in our life. It always proves to be something that prepares us for something that's coming for which we're going to need that that greater faith. But let me just go through a, a couple of principles, if you will, that maybe will be helpful to the person who asked this question. Uh, and I pray again, apologize if I come across sounding like I'm being insensitive, but I do want this to be something that all of us can benefit from. And the first thing I, I, would, I would begin with is saying that uh, going to Amos chapter 3, verse 3, where Amos says, do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? In a general sense, when you talk about managing monies in your life or just about anything, there really has to be an agreement. And it's interesting because I know I think about my wife and I's relationship that I don't know if it's apparent to you, but I kind of tend to be a risk taker. Uh, I tend to be one of those guys that, hey, what's the worst can happen? We die. I mean, that's the worst can happen. So let's try it. <laughs> and and uh, my wife uh, is kind of like not. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, the question she would always say to me is, I don't understand how you can get on an airplane, fly 10,000 miles to a foreign country and not be sure who's going to pick you up or if they will. And I said, well, I can remember at least five times I showed up in some foreign country and the people forgot or had the wrong time and they weren't there. Well, she says, what do you do? I said, well, there's always a hotel someplace. (laughs) You just hope for a clean bed and hope that eventually they find you and they seem to always get around to it. And my response to that was, uh, my response in my own heart at those moments is saying, God has decided to give me some private time just to spend with him. <laughs> Sitting here and I just, I can just take this. I mean, you can look at it and say, okay, who screwed up? This is a mistake. What's the error? Or you can look for God in the situation. And that's really, I think, so much more pleasurable. It's so much more pleasing and satisfying to look for God in bad things than it is just to assume that somehow an angel in heaven got your file in the wrong place and you were overlooked. But I think when it comes to this kind of things that there has to be this agreement. And I remember this this summer, my wife and I were contemplating, what do we do for a vacation? I said, you know, I know one thing for sure. I've got to get out of town. I've got to get out of range of anything that can, can keep me from being able just to relax. And as I prayed about it, I said, I went to her and I said, I got this great idea. Let's take a road trip. Let's just drive across the United States. I've never done that before. After I did it, I realized why I had never done it before. (laughs) But nonetheless, I mean, quite honestly, when it was all done, we sat back and went, you know, I'm glad we did it, and we'll never do that again. But nonetheless, it was an experience that was worth having. But I find when I first presented that to her, she's always got better judgment, and she said, that sounds terrible. She said, I can imagine myself sitting in a car 8, 10, 12 hours with you. I will not come back alive the way you drive. And I, you know, I said, honey, it, it'll be safe. I mean, that's why they, they made the speed limits 95 in Wyoming. <laughs> that's right, isn't it? No, I actually, I got to admit, when I hit Montana, I saw 80 miles per hour as the speed limit. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. It was, it was, the whole road trip was just worth Wyoming and South Dakota. I mean, that was because everybody knows it's whatever the speed limit is posted and then 10 miles over that. That's, that's the way the law works in my world. But it was one of those things that finally, you know, I just said, well, you think about it, you pray about it. And we had to come to an agreement. And throughout our entire life, that's been the process coming to an agreement. I remember when Chuck Smith called me up when I was living in Oregon in a little town of 600 people. And I think, how'd you find me? And he said, well, you want to come in my staff? And, I'm, and I said, well, let me pray about it. And I went and talked to my wife and she said, I'm not moving to California. I said, well, I can't really 
become a pastor to married couples by myself, can I? That's not going to work out real well. Well, you pray about it. You decide. What you, and it was like, took her two weeks, and finally she came and said, I guess it's God's will. But there has to be this idea that, that there's an agreement. And when you talk about financial management, I mentioned on Sunday that one of the major causes for marital breakup is conflict about money. And it may not be the root of the cause, but it's the, most, it's the first thing that comes out of the mouth of the couple when they walk into the counselor's office and say, it doesn't know how to handle money, it doesn't do this. And so as a result, you find that there's not an agreement on deeper things like what are the key values that our lives are going to be founded on. Because money doesn't, money kind of gives you a hint to what we count as valuable. If you want to know what's important to people, just go look at their checkbook or their spending record, and you'll find that they spend their money on the things that are most important to them. And sometimes they have placed a financial importance on things that really, really aren't good investments. But there has to be that unity. There has to be that agreement. When, when he says, when Paul said to the Corinthians, and he says, I would that you be of one mind, that you live in peace, and the God of peace, love and peace be with you. The idea is that there is no peace in the home if there is an agreement on these fundamental things. And so it is the issue that comes, over, uh, uh, comes up again and again and again. How do we come to one mind? Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, he says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. And also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And so we have statements like this over and over and over and over again, that God's will is that there be a harmoniousness between us and the people that are most important in our life. And so what you have to understand is there's a spiritual dimension to that, where not only is the Spirit of God trying to create that unity and that oneness of mind, there's also evil spirits that are trying to divide and conquer. And so... What I have found oftentimes in disagreements is that the truth lies somewhere in the middle. That each of us brings our own perspective, our own point of view into an issue. But how do you get to that place where you both are in agreement? And I have found it comes through prayer. That as my wife and I have humbled ourselves, or even my staff and team, we, we sometimes have different ideas of what's most important, what we should do first, or how we should go address a problem. But as you sit there before God and just say, God, what is it that you want? What, what is your, the desires of your heart? God has a way of discovering to us things that we never would have imagined. And oftentimes, he shows us things that we would never see until we start asking him. I always go back to James chapter 4 where he says, you have not because you ask not. And I think that that's not only terms of material things, but it has to do with insight and wisdom and understanding. And, and you, you don't have something because you haven't gone to him. So that whatever dynamic we go through in our life, we need to understand that God's primary purpose is to use that thing to draw us into a greater place of submission and surrender to him where we simply say, Lord, whatever you want. And I just know, and I don't want to go into detail about this, but there have been experiences in my life, not just once or twice, but quite a few times, where just, it's just been so painfully difficult. And I find myself, as I'm seeking God to relieve that pressure and that stress and that pain and that conflict in my life, that in the midst of seeking God in, to, to relieve that pressure, I finally come to a place in my life of saying, Lord, your will be done, whatever you want. If this is the way you want the rest of my life to be, then your will be done. And it's kind of an amazing moment that you come to because you find yourself coming into agreement, not just simply with another person, but you're coming into agreement with God. And that's really what God wants. When, when he says, this is how you should pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This idea of Jesus, at the, which I believe was the highest moment of faith any place in the Bible, when he's on his face in the garden and he says, Father, not my will, but your will be done. If there's any way that this can pass from me, what was it that Jesus didn't want to experience? It wasn't death. He wasn't afraid of death. He knew where, what the other side of death was. He came from the other side of death. 
He knew where the Father was. He says, I know where I've come from and I know where I'm going. So what was it he was struggling with? And probably the, the thing that you and I have never experienced and what he feared was that separation from the Father. You see, you and I experience separation from the Father on an ongoing basis, don't we? I mean, we, we drift. There's a reason why the writer of Hebrews said don't drift is because we're drifters. <laughs> we, we drift away. We're like little children, like the little two-year-olds. You know, if you don't have them on a leash or a collar or, uh, you know, a, something to control them, they're going to run off and go God knows where. And we're kind of like that. We just kind of wander and get lost. And we experience that separation that even though God hasn't moved, we don't feel his presence sometimes because our heart isn't a place that's receptive to him. And when we rediscover that intimacy with God, it's this coming home and it's this beautiful sense of peace and harmony and oneness with God. Jesus had never had that. That he was constant and continuously in fellowship so that Jesus could, we find in the gospel, just starts breaking into personal one-on-one conversation with the Father as if the Father is right here because he said he is, I and the Father are one. And he knew that when he became the recipient of the sins of mankind that there would become something between him and the Father. He said, if there's any way that, that, can, that I can accomplish your will without that happening, and yet that is the most central issue of the human condition, is that because of sin, we are separated from the Father, and because of sin, the harmony that comes with oneness with God is shattered, and we're born into a world not even experiencing that intimacy of God. We can see His presence. We can watch His footprints across the face of our life. We can see His fingerprints on the windows of our world. But we don't see Him until we're born again of the Spirit. And the reason we can see Him when we're born again is because Jesus died on the cross. It was the only way for Him to shatter the barrier that stood between man and God. And we could be drawn into that intimacy with God. And as Jesus lay there, he said, Father, not what I want, but what you want. He expressed, I think, what is the central call of the Christian life is to be in a place of total and absolute surrender to what God wants for you. And that is the hardest place to come, especially when we want for something that we think we should have and we just don't seem to be able to get to it. When we pulled all the right levers and all the right cords and we've done this and we jumped through all the hoops and we've said everything we think we're supposed to say and you go through all the list of formulas, what happens when you've done everything that you were told to do and it doesn't turn out that way? And that to me is one of the biggest challenges of talking about things like personal finances. Because I can look out and say, you know, for 90% of people, 95% of people, you do these things and it's going to work out right. But what if God is doing something different in somebody else's life? Can we allow that and say, you know what? Sometimes God does things in people's lives that he didn't do in other people's lives. Why does he allow some people to suffer physical injuries and paraplegics and quadriplegics and, and all sorts of things? Why, why does God allow Lou Gehrig's disease and things of that nature that seem so terrible and yet we find that oftentimes when believers are afflicted by those kind of situations, they have to come to a place where they finally embrace what is the reality for God, that he's not going to heal this. As he said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. And so, you know, it's, there's a harmony and a peace that can come in our relationship with other people when we agree on something. And it's the same dynamic that when we agree with God and say, Lord, I really don't like this. I'm deeply unhappy because of this. I, I wish it wasn't this way, Lord. But if this is what you've ordained, then your will be done. That's why the second thing I would say is that you have to come to a place, I think, too, where, um, well, I think how Solomon said it twice in Proverbs, he said, don't go to war without wise guidance. Victory depends on having many counselors. That sometimes what we desperately need is another set of eyes looking at our world, our situation. And this is one of the things hard for people. It's humbling to go to somebody else and saying, you know what, I can't figure this out. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not an idiot. I'm not a slow learner. 
But somehow I don't understand why this is happening. And that doesn't even guarantee that if you do that, that the person you talk to is going to have answers. Because oftentimes they don't. But there's something powerful in being able to allow other people into the commonality of our struggle that we can weep with those who weep, as Paul said. Because only then can we rejoice with those who rejoice. And this is, again, we, we live in this culture, especially when it comes to money, where we feel like we have to present ourselves as having it all together. You know, that we're, we're wise and we're insightful in a culture that has deified money. And that's what we have. You know, we say in God we trust, but <laughs> really, we, we trust Him as far as that bill will carry us. So you live in a culture that, that idolizes money and what money supposedly promises that it can do for you. But when you're in a situation in a culture that worships that God and you say, but somehow that doesn't work for me and I'm not in control and I can't manage this, to be able to honestly confess our struggles with other people is a powerful healing dynamic in our lives. But we have to humble ourselves. It's one thing to say, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. It is a very different thing to humble yourself in front of people. Because I know I can trust God with my junk. <laughs> I, know, I know He's gracious and He's merciful. People I'm not so sure about. You've got to be a little careful there. But at the same time, how do we experience God's grace? Because sometimes it's in that sharing honestly of what the struggles we're going through are that we find that God has brought into our life people who have resources that can make a difference in our life. But, you know, again, if we say to God, I have not because I ask not, the same thing is true within the community of believers, that if I never express a need in my life to other friends and say, would you, you help me out or pray for me or, you know, do something, then we, we miss out on sometimes the, the humbling of being helped in a culture that wants to be self-sufficient, it's humbling to need and to be helped. And we often complain that we live in this entitlement culture where people are always wanting everybody to do everything else for them and so forth and so on. And I, I agree. I mean, it's obvious that there are people who, you know, make a living off of living off of your living and stuff like that. I mean, it's, it makes sense. But I don't find that most people want to be in that space. Most people do want to carry their own weight. They want to be able to feel like they have shouldered their share and, and, and they can have the respect of being able to do it themselves. That's why I often tell parents, you know, don't do everything for your kids. Let them work out some of the stuff on their own, even conflicts and relationships, because they'll never learn how to and, and have respect for themselves if they don't have to fight through some issues in life. We learn and we grow by having to struggle and then survive and come out on the other side. I mean, there's no other explanation for why God allows trials to come into your and my life. So that's going to be part of the process. But the thing is, we need other people. And we need other people to know what, what we are battling and what we're struggling and what we're conflicted with and invite them to be able to speak into our lives. But that brings me to this kind of last thing because I only have so much time here. As I was contemplating this thing, I thought, there are lots of people I've known who through no fault of their own found themselves um, devastated financially. I mean, every one of us like to think that we've got it, you know, barricaded and, and, and taken care of. But, you know, uh, there's no guarantees in this life. I've known many, many people. I've known people who, in my mind, were amazingly wealthy and then very amazingly, they become amazingly unwealthy through a whole flow of things that I had never seen before. I'll never forget a, a gentleman's wife who, uh, this, he was such a ne nicest people on the planet. And, and this guy had invented a piece of uh, equipment that they used for drilling oil. And it was, he, he ended up having an entire company, a factory. They manufactured, sold these parts to all these oil companies all over the world who were doing all this digging. And man, they, he was just rolling in it. And then the oil, uh, back in the, in the 80s, the oil uh, industry just went in the tank. And suddenly he's got the factory and the employees and the equipment and all the, all the things that go with it. He has no buyers for his product because nobody's drilling for oil. 
and he lost everything. And I just, I was so, so interesting because he's telling me the story and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is so terrible. And he said, you know, the beautiful thing about it is now I'm available for whatever God wants to do with my life. <laughs> he says, I have, I have nothing else that I have to worry about. I'm, I'm ready for whatever God has for me. Well, maybe you say, well, he probably had an entrepreneurial spirit. But we have to understand that stuff does happen. In fact, there are things that are, are real, what I call budget killers, you know, that, that um, most people, and they're, they're, I have my seven top budget killers that most people don't even think about because we all kind of assume that we got a job, we have an income, and everything's going to continue kind of along on this level, and if I just play, you know, by the rules and stay in bounds and, you know, <clears throat> don't cheat, I'll be okay, and that's no guarantee. Because throughout history, whole nations have collapsed overnight. But even more mundane, let me tell you what the, the seven biggest budget killers are. And you'll hate me for the first one. It's kids. <laughs> to raise a child from zero to 18 is projected that uh, based upon today's number, when your kids hit 18 years of age, you'll have spent over $300,000 per child. And we're not talking about fancy stuff. We're just talking about the things that come. And so, you know, it's one of those kind of things, wow, let's start a family. And then we, you know, after you've got your first kid and he's six months old, you're saying, how come we don't have any money left? <laughs> and I mean, talking about sticker shock, it, my first major sticker shock was diapers. You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> Can you make that kid use less? You know, I mean, it's like, I, it, was, it blew my way. And suddenly, we had holes in our budget that I had never anticipated. And that's, we're not even talking about if they go to college or anything else. And that's one of the things that a lot of times people don't really understand. You have to understand that children are expensive. They cost you a lot of money. And you have to adjust your lifestyle. And this is where a lot of times people get in trouble. Because they don't adjust their lifestyle. They want to maintain the same lifestyle. You know, it's... What's that Subaru commercial? I don't know. It's American. What's that? Yeah, I can't even remember the product. It's some insurance company. But it's, I, I love this commercial because the guy's always saying, I'll never do that. I'll never have one of those. You know, I don't know. You probably know the one I'm talking about. But it's like, I, I always get all weepy every time I watch that. I go, oh, God, what's up, you And he's got the, finally at the end, he's got the kids. He says, I'm never letting go. And I think, oh, this is so good. Anyway, but, but the, all of that, in a way, in a very touching and humorous way, it kind of touches on the fact that we don't anticipate the impact and how it does affect our lives. But there's, there's a cost to raising kids. They're expensive. And it's worth it. I mean, we would be so much more impoverished emotionally and relationally in every other way if we didn't have children, but we have to understand that it's a costly dynamic of life. That if you plan on marrying and having a family, you need to kind of recognize that you're going to have to make adjustments all the way down the road. And, and, and don't buy into that thing when they reach 18, they're on their own. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, one third of, of, of millennials are still living with mom and dad. And the other third, another third are probably living off mom and dad to some degree. It's just, it's just the way it is. And we even find with our adult kids, there are points they come to and we, we have to help them out. Because they're in a tough spot. So, I mean, it's, it's expensive. The number two thing that is the biggest budget buster is divorce. It's going to cost you, when you get a divorce, it costs you, probably on average, about $150,000. Oh, not, not necessarily in legal expenses, although if there's any contention over the, the, the child, the, the custody and all these other things, it can go any place from starting at $15,000, a minimum retainer for a lawyer, up to $50,000 and more, depending on how many resources the lawyers can, can liquidate to fund themselves. But the simple thing is that there's, this, there's a major income loss that goes with a part family breaking apart. If you're especially a two-income family and suddenly now you're one income, you have the same debt load. You have to divide assets, which depreciates your, your, your net worth. You have, to, you have debts, and sometimes it ends up one person has to carry those debts. Issues of child support, alimony. But even restarting your life 
People get a divorce and they have to go, okay, so now where am I going to live? I'm going to have to go out and find a new place to live and restart my life and, and uh, deal with a whole set of issues that maybe I hadn't thought about. And you throw in things like work loss and career interruptions and even health impact, especially for men. Divorce tends to be very, have a huge health impact on men. Uh, and uh, far more, in, and emotionally as well. So maybe I should have thrown in there for counseling to go on top of all the stuff. So it's one of those things, again, that people think that divorce is something that solves problems. No, divorce, it, it just, it, it's like they're like flatworms. You cut them in half, and now you have two, you know? And, and the more you keep on cutting it up, the more you have. It, they multiply and become a bigger and bigger issue in your life that will, again, cost you significantly. The third budget killer, and this is a more common one, is housing. See, we, we live in this assumption that I got to get into the housing market so I can begin to, to create some equity, some value, some, you know, because I'll buy low and I'll sell high. And, you know, we watch these TV shows, these guys who are flipping houses and, we, you know, we get, and believe me, there are people who can do that. They, they buy a home, they renovate it quickly, and they flip it, and they make all this money. There are people who do that. That's just not you. <laughs> I mean, you're not that guy. I'm sorry. Probably you're not that guy. No, what happens is that most people, um, one of the biggest things is they end up buying more house than they can afford because the realtor will tell you, oh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go up in value. It always goes up in value. I, I, I'm TJ Maxx with my wife. I'm not a plug for the store, but I'm, you know, uh, she shops and I stand around. And as I'm, I'm waiting on her, I run into somebody that we knew from years ago and we started talking. And I said, well, is, is Jim ready to retire now? He's getting up there in that age. She says, oh, he'll never retire. I said, what do you mean he'll never retire? Well, we're upside down in our house. You know, we bought this house, the market changed, and we're so upside down. I mean, retirement's out of the question. We'll, he'll be working the rest of his life. And you just go, wait a minute, isn't that the promise? And see, this is one of the biggest traps that young people in particular get into. If I just get into a house, I'll make all this money. But what happens? You, you live in a house for less than four years, five years, you're probably not going to make any money, especially after the realtors get done taking their cut. And you're lucky if you walk out with anything. In fact, you're lucky if you just get your money yourself out. And many times they forget about, wait a minute, I paid a down payment and I've been paying monthly payments every month. And the whole thing is, it's so much better than rent. Let me tell you how it works with the housing market. Keep it for the next 25 years and you'll do okay. Keep it for 25 years, and you will come out on the other end. When you're too decrepit and old to, to shovel the snow anymore, then you can sell it to some young person, and you can walk away with probably, but ne not necessarily, I can't even really promise that. The simple fact is that you need to understand, many people buy too much ho house, they, buy, uh, they spend too much for that house, and we, there's a term we have for it, they become house poor, that they basically are having to subsidize such a large percentage of their income. Let me tell you, you get, you know, up above 30 or 40% of your monthly income is going to house payments. You're probably really struggling. You get to 50%, it's unsustainable. And so yet many people are doing that and they get into those adjustable rate mortgages, you know, where we start you at this rate. And you know what I found? My wife and I got into one of those, one of our houses. And you know what we discovered? Is that that adjustable rate that was way off in the future got here real quick. <laughs> and suddenly it was like, eh, God in his mercy helped us to refinance. And it was, I'm, but I, I thought, I will never, ever do that again. So it's, it's one of those things that you have to realize that many times even the idea of I want to live in this place or this community because it's such a neat place, and you have to ask yourself, can you afford it? Let me give you an example. Los Angeles, California right now, 60% of the people who live in Los Angeles do not make enough money to live in Los Angeles. So what do they do? They use their credit cards to make up the difference. And little by little, they're sinking deeper, deeper, and deeper until eventually they will hit insolvency. 
And then they'll have to move. And the, well, I'll declare bankruptcy. And they, they go through this whole process. So you have to understand that we all need a place to live, but we have to be realistic, which kind of ties into the next thing is not only are housing a problem, cars can be a problem. And I'm going to shock you because I'm going to take the opposite approach with cars. You see, cheap doesn't mess necessarily mean it's going to cost you less. Sometimes they say, well, I'm just going to buy a really cheap car in which you will probably be spending more money than you ever imagined just keeping it running. I, I can't tell you how many hours I've spent on freeways <laughs> trying to get home because I got a really cheap car. Uh, the fact of the matter is, buy the best car you can afford. That's, that's a simple reality of it. Because first of all, let me ask the question, do you have to have a car? We kind of live in a world today where, unfortunately, uh, we, most of us do. You can't, our, our, our cities are built in a way that you can't just simply, unless you live in the inner city, which even here in Spokane can be a little dicey, you can't afford just to simply walk to tra public transport. So most people need a car, but you need to make sure that that's not a money pit. It's so much better to buy something that you know is dependable, reliable, and, and can get you, unless you're a mechanic. But I'm quite honest. I worked on cars when I was a kid. I look under the hood of my car now, and I can't even figure out what that thing is in there. I just, it's some kind of space-age thing. I wouldn't even begin to even touch it. But the whole point is that uh, bargains are not always bargains. And so, you know, you have to build a car payment around your budget, but don't budget around your car either. Because easily, you have to understand the idea of sales. It works this way. You probably don't know this. But when you go into a car dealer and he wants to sell you a car, do you know he wants you to spend more than you're comfortable with? Because that means his or her commission is going to be greater. So recognize that this, this can be a thing too where you can spend way too much. But at the same time, we live in an amazing age where you can, you can really buy some decent vehicles for a decent price. But make sure that you don't buy something that's undependable, but, nor something that's so terribly expensive you can't afford it. And then fifthly, I just simply say, sweat the small stuff. Sweat the small stuff. What do I mean by that? Small purchases that seem insignificant add up very quickly. Um, especially if you like to eat out or you like to pick up a latte on the way to work or the way home or at lunchtime. I would just, my wife said, sit down. And she says, you just sit down and you start saying, how much does it cost me to just run down to the burger joint every day and grab a burger and fries and a double chocolate malted and onion rings <laughs> and a cherry pie? That's it. Just a simple, simple 4,000 calorie lunch. And, but I mean, when you sit there and you add it up, it was like, Staggering. Staggering. You know, <laughs> my wife and I do this to this day. We bring our lunch from home <laughs> because it's so much cheaper. It's usually leftovers that we might end up going bad and throwing away. So bring and eat them for lunch. But there's so many ways. But again, those little things that people do that they think are just little things. You see, the average American spends $2,500 a day on snacks, lattes, and lunches. 25, not day, excuse me, $2,500 a year. On average, they spend 5.6% of your annual income, five point, almost 6% of your income on eating out. I mean, think about that. When you begin to look at that and say, wow, that's kind of an expensive way. I mean, if you're Donald Trump, go for it. But I suspect that most of you aren't that. That's why I think that, you know, it was, it was Benjamin Franklin said, a penny saved is a penny earned. And today, you know, we don't think much about pennies. But I'll never forget the guy I was reading about in the news one day where since he was like in his 20s, he started taking every penny he ever had in change and he threw it in a, in a jar. And eventually a jar became too big and so he found a larger container. Eventually he got a 50-gallon drum and he filled that up. And it, as he got to 80 years of age, he had all these drums with pennies and he turned them in and they gave him $80,000 just from pennies he had collected. Now, if he'd been really smart, he realized that the copper in them was worth more than the... the anyway, but it, it just goes to illustrate that a little bit is set aside. And some people saying, well, I just don't make enough money to save a little money. If you simply take 
five or ten dollars out of your paycheck and set it aside. It's amazing how quickly that that can begin to grow into sometimes an emergency fund or even if you don't need it to be able to gift other people with it. Because it's, my wife and I have found a lot of pleasure in that, just to be able to just take little bits of money that we just don't know what to do. We just set it aside and just, and uh, be, because there's always somebody who needs something for something. So don't stop me on the way out, please. <laughs> but Solomon warned, he said, it's the little foxes that destroy the vineyard. The little fox that comes in and nibbles away at the grapes, the clusters, he can end up devastating the entire vineyard. I remember once when I was... Uh, Early in my ministry, I did a lot of different jobs. I was working for a farmer harvesting, we were harvesting uh, squash. And in the field, one of the guys caught a little tiny bunny rabbit. He was so cute, sweet little bunny rabbit. And the farmer said, kill it. And I thought, that's terrible. And the guy went and killed this little bunny. And, and I just, I mean, it was traumatic and I cried for hours. But anyway, uh, but uh, you know, I kind of said, gee, did you have to do that? And he says, that bunny will cost me hundreds and hundreds of dollars because what it'll do is eat a hole in this squash and then it'll go eat. He says, he won't eat the whole squash. He'll just eat a hole in this one and it'll go down and eat a hole in another one. And a little bunny could cost me hundreds and hundreds of dollars. I can't afford to allow him to do that. And I just thought, what an object lesson. And I thought, I thought of Solomon. You know, Isaiah said, here a little, there a little, and suddenly there's no little left. The sixth thing that is a really a budget killer are medical bills. And that's why, you know, I, I'm really conflicted about our health care system, obviously, because I, I personally, I think the plan that was put through was so convoluted and so crazy and so nonsensical, it just made things worse. But at the same time, there are a significant percentage of people who are being destroyed, even now financially, because they can't afford their medical bills. And many times you have medical emergencies. And that's why, you know, you, nothing will wipe you out faster than medical expenses. Nothing will wipe you out more quickly. Because even when I had my, my, my cancer surgery, it was like, thankfully, the insurance company, uh, you know, covered the hundreds of thousands of dollars it cost to go through that whole process. But my wife and I still were on the hook for about 10,000 bucks. You know, and I had to look in my other pocket to find that money. You know, it's, it's like you just go, okay. And I thought to myself, it, it really hurts to have to deal with that bill. But at the same time, thank God that I had insurance. And that's why one of the things I say to some people, if you have an opportunity to get medical insurance, I don't care how young you are or how healthy you feel, you need to get it. You really need to get it because even a young person can be devastated and, and, and find themselves in terrible condition. But, and, and here, I'm getting very pedestrian because I, can I say Jesus right now for those people who are saying, he didn't mention Jesus once tonight. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Okay. But this is real stuff because I think, take care of your teeth. I mean, really, seriously, take care of your teeth. Do you realize on average people lose three years of their life expectancy because of tooth decay? Because an infection goes into the body and people's health suffer and they all sorts of complications. I tell people, do whatever you can to take care of your teeth and do some preventative things. Eat right and exercise. Get off the sugar. If you smoke, stop. And vape doesn't work either. You don't have, we have no idea. It's scary to think about what those things are putting in people's body. And if you're smoking anything else, really stop that right now. That's, that's craziness. I don't know if you even have to say that. But you know, it's, it's simply a lot of people don't really kind of take care of themselves. They don't exercise. They don't, they don't eat properly. And it does, it does catch up with you. You're going to find your body suffering as a result of it. When you get to my age, you suddenly realize how true that is. Because even for people like my, myself who have done a pretty good job of taking care of their body, I still feel it. You know, it, it just comes. I mean, I don't know what else to tell you. But the seventh thing. Actually, I, was, I debated over what number seven was going to be because statistically, the biggest thing is gambling. And I, and, and I think I, my first thought was, well, none of these people here have a problem with gambling. And I realized I've known some gambling addicts in my day. But you see, 
It's the idea of, I'm going to play the lottery because I'm just, you know, that's going to be my ticket out. And oftentimes that becomes, it's not just, well, first of all, to me, giving somebody a dollar for a piece of paper that I can scrape something off of is not a good deal. <laughs> you know, If you want a piece of paper, give me your dollar and I'll give you a piece of paper. I'll give you a nice little card. Whatever, I'll write whatever you want. It. But the whole point is, it's no more than just the giving of the money. It's the mindset behind it. Because one of the things that Proverbs said, you know, Solomon said, an inheritance gained quickly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. It's the idea that somehow by, by getting lucky or, or making that strike, I can be uh, blessed and it'll take care of all my problems. And there's a lot of ways you can gamble. I mean, there's legal gambling, like the stock market. There's illegal gambling you know, and all sorts of things. But it's the idea that somehow I'm going to get rich quick that is more of a problem because you start investing and spending and wasting in areas that don't matter. And I get back to the whole thing that it says, you know, basically a penny saved is a penny earned. A dollar not spent is a dollar that you still have. And so you don't, you don't need, I mean, you come to a point, when do you have enough shoes? When do you have enough pants and shirts and clothes and hats and cars? And when do you have enough? And human nature says, I never have enough. But you realize that there's, um, there's an addiction that goes with all of these things, whether it's gambling, whether it's spending. What I question about, and that's why I said the other side of it, that I think is the question is oftentimes, I, I was tempted to put student loans. You think about student loans right now, you know, here's interesting, I mean, there's $1.3 trillion in student loans out in America today, just in our own country, $1.3 trillion. Where does that money come from? Well, it comes from your taxes and my taxes. That's how the government can set up these funding for these things. But the simple fact is 11% of those, taxes, those, those accounts right now are in default. People aren't paying on their student loans. And most of them because they can't. And when you find that, especially, we know that the average student going to a public institution will have $27,000 in student debt if they're lucky, maybe close to 30. In private institutions, it's not uncommon for students to be paying from forty dollars to $60,000 a year so that by the time they graduate from a four-year institution with a liberal arts degree, they've spent someplace between uh, $200,000 and $250,000 that they've spent on an education, which may or may not provide them with a lifestyle. And then you have a husband and wife who both have student loans, and let's just double the costs. And suddenly you find you're starting your life, and you have this huge financial burden on your shoulders. And despite what uh, Bernie Sanders said, despite what Hillary Clinton said, you know, we'll make college free, uh, that doesn't apply to you, and it wouldn't anyway, because even they, you know, Hillary had to admit it, it wasn't going to work. Everybody knew that there was no way possible that we can just simply take $1.3 trillion and, and send it over to student loans. And here's what's really kind of crazy is, there are 5.8 million skilled jobs that are unfulfilled in America today. In Spokane alone, the average age for an electrician is 54. And why is it? Because our kids are going off to liberal arts colleges and getting degrees because they don't want to be a plumber. They don't want to be an electrician. I remember a friend of mine, their son was the only one in the group who hasn't gone off to college. And and uh, I said, what are you going to do? And he says, well, I'm going to become a lineman. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put up electrical, you know, uh, electrical lines. <laughs> I said, you know, one day your brother and sister is going to come for you looking for a loan. Because <laughs> uh, I got a lineman that lives next door to me. And I tell you, it's, it's apparently doing well. It's, the whole point is that, that what is needed oftentimes is not what people, because we have a fantasy in America, we've created this idea that if you want to be successful and you want to have self-esteem, you've got to go to college and then you can choose what you want to do with your life. Or even worse, you can become a business degree and you can go into the financial field. Instead of people sitting back and saying, what's wrong with just having a good, honest job? You know, that's why Solomon even said in Proverbs, he said, the working man sleeps well at night. Because he knows he's done an honest day's job and he feels good about what he's accomplished. It, it's, it's something crazy. And I, I, 
I mean, I, I told all of my kids, my, my son who was visiting told me, he said, when I sat down with his daughter, when she was staying with us, you know, a couple years ago, and I said, she was under all this pressure graduating high school, I said, why are you stressed? Don't go to college. I said, do not go to college until you know what you want to do with your life. Because I said, you'll just waste time and money going to school, but you're not going to school for any definite purpose. And I said, if you want to get an education, get an education in the thing that you want to do with your life and, and come up with a good reason why you don't want to develop a trade skill. Because the old rabbis used to say, a father who doesn't train his, train his, give his son a skill trains him to steal. So teach them something so that even a rabbi in a Jewish community over a synagogue would have a skill that he had learned as a trade because they knew as a persecuted people they could never depend upon religious offerings and things of that nature. They had to be able to provide for themselves. So it's not surprising the apostle Paul was a skilled tent maker, which, you know, the Roman army needed lots of tents, so there's a lot of work. So it's just, it's, these things are such terribly practical things, but these are the kind of things that I've run into over and over again with people getting into trouble. And especially the guilt that parents feel that if I'm a good father, I'm a good mother, I'm going to pay for my kids to go to college, and like that's, that's the go-to. And the simple reality is that you find yourself, well, I admit, I'm, I'm still paying on student loans. <laughs> I, it's, you know, and I've just got a few more years to go. I see light at the end of that tunnel. But I just, you know, the truth is, man, that, that uh, those education for them did not translate into occupations. They end up doing something completely different. So, maybe I'm just a bitter old man. I don't know. <laughs> but I just think there's a bit of wisdom here. Anyway, let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you said if we need wisdom that you'll give it to us. And I pray, Father, that the things I shared would, would help to cast some light on, on uh, some of the issues that often bring us into an oppression in our life. I do believe, Lord, as I shared on Sunday, that you are a God who just yearns for the opportunity to hover over our issues. And that as you do, Lord, that you breathe light and life and liberty, that you set captives free, that you want to release us from this bondage financially. Lord, I do pray for our people, Lord. I pray for the, the, the families and the men and women in this church, Lord, I pray that, Lord, that we aren't asking to become rich, Lord, but we don't want to be burdened down with the weight of, of expenses and debts that we can't handle. So, Lord, I just pray that you would take these rather practical things, Lord, and you'd let them push us to our knees and that we would just begin to cry out to you and say, God, um, Either give me grace to carry this load or give me a victory and bird deliverance from it. And if there's something that you want to work in my heart and my life, Lord, then your will be done. But God, I pray that you would just bestow your grace on me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?